from the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 18th. Today, the Supreme Court's ruling on DACA and what it means for the future of dreamers. Plus, pirate radio in the pandemic. On Thursday morning, the Supreme Court came out with a long-awaited decision. They have blocked the Trump administration from ending the DACA program, at least for now. And it's a huge victory for DREAMers, immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children and still don't have permanent legal status. Many of those DREAMers were outside the Supreme Court on Thursday. I'm definitely going to go home and hug my parents. Hopefully I can celebrate with my other DACA friends and we can just um, look at the future, the, what, the future we want, not the future that, you know, is limited to us. Uh, I, I graduated from college this past May and, you know, uh, it's been so much uncertainty. Uh, uncertainty has become part of my life. Well, it was a very big decision and one that was a bit of a surprise. Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. Chief Justice John Roberts joined the court's four liberals and stopped the Trump administration's attempt to dismantle DACA, the program that has protected from deportation hundreds of thousands of undocumented uh, immigrants who were brought here as children. The court said that it wasn't passing judgment on whether or not DACA is good policy, but that the Trump administration basically had not followed the law in trying to get rid of the program. So before we hear more about those arguments, for people who may not remember, what exactly does DACA do for people who were brought to the U.S. as children? The Department of Homeland Security is taking steps to lift the shadow of deportation from these young people. You apply for it, and basically you get two-year enrollment in the program, and it means that you won't be deported, and importantly, that you're allowed to work legally in the country. There are a number of qualifications that you have to meet. You have to have a clean record. You can't have violated the law. Eligible individuals who do not present a risk to national security or public safety will be able to request temporary relief from deportation proceedings and apply for work authorization. There are about 650,000 DACA recipients right now, and the Supreme Court was told that about 30,000 of those work in the healthcare industry. It's not a pathway to citizenship. And it's something that has to be renewed every two years. But it's very important, especially uh, the work permit part of it, for hundreds of thousands of people. And was this decision a surprise? It was a little bit of a surprise, judging from the oral arguments about this in the fall. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 18587, the Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California and the related cases. General Francisco. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The oral arguments in the case sort of set up what it was about. 
On the one hand, it would seem that an executive order issued by one president could be rescinded by another. The Department of Homeland Security reasonably determined that it no longer wished to retain the DACA policy. Based on its belief that the policy was illegal, its serious doubts about its illegality, and its general opposition to broad non-enforcement policies. That decision did not violate the APA for two reasons. But the legal question in this case was whether or not the Trump administration had complied with the law in the way it went about trying to get rid of DACA, which was enacted by his predecessor, President Obama. I'm, I'm have always had some difficulty in understanding the illegality of DACA. Liberal justices said that the administration had not taken into account uh, all of the reliance interests. I think my colleagues have rightly pointed there's a whole lot of reliance interests that weren't looked at. That hundreds of thousands of people had on this program. Including the very president of current president, telling DACA uh, uh, eligible people that they were safe under him and that he would find a way to keep them here. And so he hasn't. And instead he's done this. And that, I think, has something to be considered before you rescind a policy. Right. Not just saying, I'll give you six months to do it. Right. So, so To destroy your lives. So. The dissenters in the case said that this was a case, you know, this was a matter up to the Trump administration and that it was between the executive branch and the legislative branch and that the court shouldn't have imposed its own will here. Do you, do you agree that the executive has the legal authority to rescind DACA? Yes. Okay. So the question then comes down to the explanation. And if it's the Nielsen memo paragraph on reliance that it comes down to. It's a little hard as a legal concept, you know, if one president can enact a program like this without Congress, why can't another president get rid of it? The court said that that can happen, but it's just that once a program like this is in place, the new administration has to follow the law in getting rid of it, and that its actions can't be arbitrary and capricious. And that's what the majority of the court today said had happened. So in making that argument, did they outline what it would look like for the administration to dismantle this program in a way that they think would be legally sound? A little bit. It said that, you know, it had to provide reasons for why it was doing it. You know, especially in this case, the previous administration had encouraged those undocumented workers to, in effect, come out of the shadows to identify themselves and to enroll in this government program, you know, provide their names, provide that they had been brought here undocumented. And so in a case like that, the court said, and lower courts have also said, that it's important that the administration give more of a reason as to why it was going to get rid of the program and what would happen to those people who had sort of voluntarily come forward. So so this was a 5-4 decision. What did the justices who were in the dissent say? Three of them thought that the program that President Obama put in place was illegal, that the authority didn't exist to change immigration law in the way that they say it was done. 
And they also said that, you know, instead of the Supreme Court sort of taking on that question, it sort of issued a stopgap measure with this, saying that these legal battles would go on, that the Trump administration could go back and redo it in a way that would uh, be legal. They said that, you know, the Trump administration wanted to reverse this policy very early on, and here it is with the first term almost ending, and it's never been able to put its plan into effect. So then going forward, how much of a reprieve is this for DACA recipients? Well, it's a pretty big one because lower courts have kept this plan to get rid of the program off the books. And so it means that those who were already enrolled in the program could apply for another two years and be renewed, assuming that they met all of the qualifications, you know, and hadn't committed crimes or any of those kind of things that would be disqualifying. And, you know, there is a question now about whether it means that new people could apply for the program. That's something that hasn't been allowed during the Trump administration. So it could be a very big decision. And, you know, it seems unlikely that the Trump administration would be able to sort of go about all that needs to be done in time for it to go into effect, for instance, by the election. So thinking back to 2012, when President Obama first put in place this executive order, I think the criticism was that an executive order would be impermanent and something that another president could just roll back. But at least so far, it seems like DACA has been surprisingly resilient to being dismantled. Well, that's right. And and remember that that uh, effort by the Obama administration came after once again an effort at comprehensive immigration reform had failed. And but it probably will start another legal battle if the administration decides to go back and try to end the program. You know, we should also say that President Trump has been pretty ambivalent about this as well. Even though he's wanted to end the program, he says that he doesn't necessarily want all of these people deported because they've been, you know, they serve important jobs, they've served in the military. Today, his reaction was quite strong. He asked in one tweet, do you get the impression that the Supreme Court doesn't like me very much? And then in another said that this showed why he should be reelected because the administration was getting these adverse rulings from the Supreme Court and he needs time to appoint more justices who would think the way his administration thinks. What do you think this ruling says about the future for DREAMers? Well, I think it shows that there's a great deal of sympathy out there for them. I mean, public opinion polls show that the public overwhelmingly thinks these people covered by the program should not be forced to leave the really the only country they've ever known. On the other hand, no one thinks that the immigration system works very well and that Congress and the executive branch have been battling for years about what to do about immigration. And so it really points out once again that there is sort of no clear answer to these questions and that the political branches have been unable to come up with one. 
Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. Video journalist Alice Lee reported from outside the Supreme Court. I mean, I'm doing okay. I feel a little bit relieved right now, but definitely really worry about what the Trump administration can do. Just a little while after the Supreme Court decision came out, we called up Reina Montoya. She's in Arizona, outside of Phoenix, where she was actually driving to a press conference. Reina is a DACA recipient and the founder and CEO of an organization called Aliento. Aliento translates into breath, but when you give Aliento to someone, it's like giving words of encouragement. So we are a nonprofit leadership organization that works with dreamers and immigrants to transform trauma into hope and action through leadership development, arts and healing workshops, and advocacy. So tell me about your reaction when you heard the news this morning. The first thing was that like tears were coming down my face, my my whole hands were shaking. I was in the Supreme Court blog, so I really wanted to understand what 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 the decision meant. I'm not an attorney, you know, mm-hmm. so I was with my partner, who's also a DACA recipient, and we were all trying to figure it out. And then we read that the decision was five to four. And, and had you been anticipating this ruling, or what was it like in the kind of days and weeks leading up to this moment? I've been waking up at 6 a.m. in the morning because I am in the West Coast in Arizona. So I could be ready to monitor the Supreme Court blog every single Monday. That's typically when they're making the decisions and occasionally one Thursday here and there. So I, if I can be very honest, I was expecting the worst outcome. I thought that they were going to be ending the program. So there's been like a lot of anxiety building up to this day. And so tell me about the relief that you are feeling right now after this decision, or or is it relief, right? Like, is there, are you still worried? Definitely. I feel today, I I feel that I can finally catch a breath. I feel that I, I can have another day to, to advocate for myself, to fight for, for other dreamers like me. But I also have a heavy heart. Because in one end, as you know, the Supreme Court said specifically that the reason why they're siding with us is because the Trump administration didn't follow protocol and the right steps, which means that the Trump administration could decide to continue to now follow every single step and eventually end the program. So definitely it's a very bittersweet moment. So can you tell me a little bit more about your own personal story and how you became enrolled in DACA and how DACA has affected your life? I was born in Tijuana, Mexico, and at the age of 10, we ended up fleeing violence since my dad, unfortunately, was victim of a crime and he was kidnapped. We ended up doing an internal migration within Mexico first, where we migrated to another city in another state seeking refuge. But since the people behind my dad's kidnapping was the Mexican police, he was so worried about our future after many threats of not only having him kidnapped, but they threatened him that they, they could kill not only him, but but his family. So we eventually migrated to Arizona where I grew up. I went to junior high. I went to high school. And all these years leading up to DACA, I was one of the few Latinas in my school. There were not many people that spoke Spanish. So really early on, I learned 
that I had to learn English in order for me to survive and and to be able to to do well in school. So mm-hmm. long story short, I eventually went to Arizona State University where I graduated with higher honors. The DACA program was announced one month after my graduation. So I soon applied for it and I was able to get a social security. I was only 21 at that moment. So with that, it enabled me to go back to school. I got a master's degree in secondary education where I taught high school for two years in in my community in the state where I call home. I was able to buy a home at a, at the age of 25. I became a homeowner thanks to DACA uh-huh. and I got my first healthcare plan and like I hadn't gone to the doctor or to the dentist in a long time. So definitely it meant a lot. It meant the fact that I, whenever there was a family emergency, like my parents didn't have to worry about who was going to talk on behalf of them or who can sign documents. So it definitely was a huge, a huge relief. Had you thought about what was going to happen if this ruling had gone the other way and the Supreme Court said that DACA could cease to exist? Yes, there has been like so many months of planning about what that could look like. Like, for example, at the financial level, I had to prepare. What about if I get deported? Like, who's going to take over my assets since I'm a homeowner? Like, what's going to happen to my bank account? Who, who's, some, who's a citizen that I can trust that can be making decisions on my financial end? I think I also was preparing in terms of the organization. I am the CEO and founder of Aliento. So I was coming up with a succession plan about who would, after my work permit were to expire, who was going to take charge of the organization since if I don't have a social security, I wouldn't be able to be no longer the CEO. And so now that this ruling has happened, how does that change your future? Like, are there things that you feel like you can do now because you know that there's at least a little bit more certainty? I think that I can catch my breath. And right now we are thinking about more strategically because at the end of the day, these uncertain future and legal limbo will continue until the Senate decides to act. We know that in order for us to have a life, we need to have a pathway to citizenship and have something permanent that we're not living in every two year cycles or, or waiting until President Trump decides to once again end the program and follow all the right steps. And then I will be back at square zero becoming undocumented. From your perspective, what do you think needs to happen to give you more of that long-term certainty that you're still missing? At this end, my life and the life of close to 700,000 dreamers, it's in the hands of Congress. They have the opportunity to come up with a, with a solution. So I think that at this moment, you know, the House of Representatives already put their proposal over. It is up to the Senate. If they don't like the House of Representatives bill, they can legislate their legislators. They can put forward their own proposal and making sure that we were able to eventually have a congressional answer on this. Reina Montoya is a DACA recipient and CEO of Aliento. And now, one more thing. Radio Recliner Real resident DJs broadcasting from our rooms. 
You're listening to Radio Recliner. Hey there. Here we are back again, and I'm so anxious to talk to all of you. I am your new DJ, Ginger B. Wake up, you sleepyhead, get up. I've been listening to a, a new station called Radio Recliner. The request line is always open. And it's called that because the people who are the DJs playing their music. Hi, this is your DJ for today, and my name is Happy Feet. This is Bob Coleman, better known as the Karaoke Cowboy. The Windjammer, brought to you by Radio Recliner are sitting in recliners alone in their rooms in nursing homes and retirement communities across the country. It's a bright day in Franklin, Tennessee. Here in downtown Sandy Springs. In Birmingham, Alabama. These are people mostly in their late 70s, 80s, even 90s. I would like to be a resident DJ. And they've been offered this chance to play an hour of their favorite tunes from all of their lives and tell the stories that made that music meaningful to them. As a little girl, I was very, very interested in the music that was coming from the radio speaker. I'm Mark Fisher. I'm a senior editor at The Post to write about uh, everything from politics to culture to why people do what they do. It's uh, everything from an all Elvis show to a 60s pop tune show. Some of this goes back to 1940s big band tunes and the crooners of the 50s. And some of it is uh, much more modern stuff. Uh, There was even a Kelly Clarkson song in one of the shows. This was set up by a marketing company that was working with a company that owns about 25 retirement communities across the country, and they thought of it as something for their residents to do in this very lonely, isolated time when they've been basically sealed off from the outside world. Hi, Dad. This is Lynn. The audience is both other people in their own retirement communities, but also a lot of their family members. Hey, Grammy. This is your favorite granddaughter, Amy, and... Hi, Grammy. And so the idea was, let them have this opportunity to kind of talk to each other and the people around the country who are similarly affected by the virus, and let them have fun and play their music and kind of maybe take a little time travel back to a happier moment in their lives. When I was a very little girl, we lived in the Bronx, and I played... The radio all the time. I think I DJ Happy Feet is a woman named Teresa Carter who uh, had this habit as a little girl of listening to a show on WNEW called the Make Believe Ballroom. And Make Believe Ballroom was one of the first, if not the first, DJ shows in radio history. And what it said was, it's Make Believe Ballroom time. It's time to to dance. And that was it. I got all excited. I can remember now. You could just hear the joy in her voice when she talked about recreating that make-believe ballroom. And then I would start to dance around whatever he played. And that's why I'm called Happy Feet. Listening to Radio Recliner. Hi, I'm DJ Eminem from Franklin, Massachusetts. 
DJ Eminem is Marion Murray. And I hope you're all doing well. She told me a story about a uh, first love story, really, uh, which the DJs were really into, because these are the songs of their teen years. Both my husband and I, we both loved the country western music. The song for her that really sent her was Buddy Holly's Peggy Sue. I remember, oh God, we were young, and he used to sing Peggy Sue. She remembers that that was the song that brought her and her husband together. Peggy Sue, I love you. <laughs> For her, it's really like time travel. And I'll never forget it because it was perfect. Listening to Radio Recliner is just an injection of hope that we probably all need these days because here are the most vulnerable people in our country who know that they are much more likely than anyone else to get COVID and to die from it if they do get it. These are people who have been through a lot. Some of them talked about how when they were teenagers, they had a whole summer where they were stuck inside because the polio epidemic was raging. So the perspective that they have, the ability to connect what we're going through now to other times that they got through in life is really what gives them hope that we hope can be contagious to the rest of us. I know you're enjoying this confinement we have right now, but this too is going to be gone before long. Mark Fisher is a senior editor for The Post. Radio Recliner. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's Post reports, the legacy of two moments in history that many Americans are just beginning to learn, Juneteenth and the Tulsa Massacre. It's looking through the rearview mirror in history to help guide us to understand those moments when we lost our way, so we make sure that that does not happen again. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.